Book Four, Chapter Six of History of the Conquest of Mexico. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Margaret S. Bayat. History of the Conquest of Mexico by William H. Prescott. Book Four, Chapter Six. Fate of Cortes Emissaries. Proceedings in the Castilian Court. Preparations of Velasquez. Narvaez lands in Mexico. Politic conduct of Cortes. He leaves the capital. Before explaining the nature of the tidings alluded to in the preceding chapter, it will be necessary to cast a glance over some of the transactions of an earlier period. The vessel, which, as the reader may remember, bore the envoys Puerto Carrero and Montejo with the dispatches from Veracruz, after touching, contrary to orders, at the northern coast of Cuba, and spreading the news of the late discoveries, held on its way uninterrupted towards Spain, and early in October 1519 reached the little port of San Lucar. Great was the sensation caused by her arrival, and the tidings which she brought, a sensation scarcely inferior to that created by the original discovery of Columbus. For now, for the first time, all the magnificent anticipations formed of the new world seemed destined to be realized. Unfortunately, there was a person in Seville at this time named Benito Martín, chaplain of Velázquez, the governor of Cuba. No sooner did this man learn of the arrival of the envoys and the particulars of their story than he lodged a complaint with the Casa de Contratación, the Royal India House, charging those on board the vessel with mutiny and rebellion against the authorities of Cuba, as well with treason to the crown. In consequence of his representations, the ship was taken possession of by the public officers, and those on board were prohibited from moving their own effects or anything else from her. The envoys were not even allowed the funds necessary for the expenses of the voyage, nor a considerable sum remitted by Cortés to his father, Don Martín. In this embarrassment they had no alternative but to present themselves, as speedily as possible, before the emperor, deliver the letters with which they had been charged by the colony, and seek redress for their own grievances. They first sought out Martín Cortés, residing at Medellín, and with him made the best of their way to court. Charles V was then on his first visit to Spain after his accession. It was not a long one, long enough, however, to disgust his subjects and, in a great degree, to alienate their affections. He had lately received intelligence of his election to the imperial crown of Germany. From that hour his eyes were turned to that quarter. His stay in the peninsula was prolonged only that he might raise supplies for appearing with splendor on the great theatre of Europe. Every act showed too plainly that the diadem of his ancestors was held lightly in comparison with the imperial bauble which neither his countrymen nor his own posterity could have the slightest interest. The interest was wholly personal. Contrary to established usage, he had summoned the Castilian Cortes to meet at Compostella, 
a remote town in the north which presented no other advantage than that of being near his place of embarkation. On his way thither he stopped some time at Tordesillas, the residence of his unhappy mother, Joanna the Mad. It was here that the envoys from Veracruz presented themselves before him in March 1520. At nearly the same time the treasures brought over by them reached the court, where they excited unbounded admiration. Hitherto the returns from the new world had been chiefly in vegetable products, which, if the surest, are also the slowest sources of wealth. Of gold they had as yet seen but little, and that in its natural state, or wrought into the rudest trinkets. The courtiers gazed with astonishment on the large masses of the precious metal, and the delicate manufacture of the various articles, especially of the richly tinted featherwork. And as they listened to the accounts, written and oral, of the great Aztec empire, they felt assured that the Castilian ships had, at length, reached the golden Indies, which hitherto had seemed to recede before them. In this favorable mood there is little doubt the monarch would have granted the petition of the envoys, and confirmed the irregular proceedings of the conquerors, but for the opposition of a person who held the highest office in the Indian department. This was Juan Rodríguez de Fonseca, formerly Dean of Seville, now Bishop of Burgos. He was a man of noble family, and had been entrusted with the direction of the colonial concerns on the discovery of the New World. On the establishment of the Royal Council of the Indies by Ferdinand the Catholic, he had been made its president, and had occupied that post ever since. His long continuance in a position of great importance and difficulty is evidence of capacity for business. It was no uncommon thing in that age to find ecclesiastics in high civil, and even military employments. Fonseca appears to have been an active, efficient person, better suited to a secular than to a religious vocation. He had, indeed, little that was religious in his temper, quick to take offense and slow to forgive. His resentments seem to have been nourished and perpetuated like a part of his own nature. Unfortunately, his peculiar position enabled him to display them towards some of the most illustrious men of his time. From pique at some real or fancied slight from Columbus, he had constantly thwarted the plans of the great navigator. He had shown the same unfriendly feelings towards the admiral's son, Diego, the heir of his honors, and he now, from this time forward, showed a similar spirit toward the conqueror of Mexico. The immediate cause of this was his own personal relations with Velázquez, to whom a near relative was betrothed. Through this prelate's representations, Charles, instead of a favorable answer to the envoys, postponed his decision till he should arrive at Coruna, the place of embarkation. But here he was much pressed by the troubles which his impolitic conduct had raised, as well as by preparations for his voyage. The transaction of the colonial business, which long postponed had greatly accumulated on his hands, was reserved for the last week in Spain but the affairs of the young admiral consumed so large a portion of this that he had no time to give to those of Cortés, except, indeed, to instruct the board at Seville to remit to the envoys so much of their funds as was required to defray the charges of the voyage. 
On the 16th of May, 1520, the impatient monarch bade adieu to his distracted kingdom, without one attempt to settle the dispute between his belligerent vassals in the new world, and without an effort to promote the magnificent enterprise which was to secure to him the possession of an empire. What a contrast to the policy of his illustrious predecessors, Ferdinand and Isabella! The governor of Cuba, meanwhile, without waiting for support from home, took measures for redress into his own hands. We have seen in a preceding chapter how deeply he was moved by the reports of the proceedings of Cortés and of the treasures which his vessel was bearing to Spain. Rage, mortification, disappointed avarice distracted his mind. He could not forgive himself for trusting the affair to such hands. On the very week in which Cortés had parted from him to take charge of the fleet, a capitulation had been signed by Charles V, conferring on Velázquez the title of Adelantado, with great augmentation of his original powers. The governor resolved, without loss of time, to send such a force to the Aztec coast, as should enable him to assert his new authority to its full extent, and to take vengeance on his rebellious officer. He began his preparations as early as October. At first he proposed to assume the command in person, but his unwieldy size, which disqualified him for the fatigues incident to such an expedition, or, according to his own account, tenderness for his Indian subjects, then wasted by an epidemic, induced him to devolve the command on another. The person whom he selected was a Castilian Hidalgo named Panfilo de Narváez. He had assisted Velázquez in the reduction of Cuba, where his conduct cannot be wholly vindicated from the charge of inhumanity, which too often attaches to the early Spanish adventurers. From that time he continued to hold important posts under the government, and was a decided favorite with Velázquez. He was a man of some military capacity, though negligent and lax in his discipline. He possessed undoubted courage, but it was mingled with an arrogance, or rather overweening confidence in his own powers, which made him deaf to the suggestions of others more sagacious than himself. He was altogether deficient in that prudence and calculating foresight demanded in a leader who was to cope with an antagonist like Cortés. The governor and his lieutenant were unwearied in their efforts to assemble an army. They visited every considerable town in the island, fitting out vessels, laying in stores and ammunition, and encouraging volunteers to enlist by liberal promises. But the most effectual bounty was the assurance of the rich treasures that awaited them in the golden regions of Mexico. So confident were they in this expectation that all classes and ages vied with one another in eagerness to embark on the expedition until it seemed as if the whole white population would desert the island and leave it to its primitive occupants. The report of these proceedings soon spread through the islands and drew the attention of the royal audience of Santo Domingo. This body was entrusted at that time not only with the highest judicial authority in the colonies, but with a civil jurisdiction which, as the admiral complained, encroached on his own rights. The tribunal saw with alarm the proposed expedition of Velázquez, which, whatever might be its issue in regard to the parties, could not fail to compromise the interests of the crown. 
they chose accordingly one of their number, the licentiate Ayon, a man of prudence and resolution, and dispatched him to Cuba with instructions to interpose his authority, and stay, if possible, the proceedings of Velasquez. On his arrival he found the governor in the western part of the island, busily occupied in getting the fleet ready for sea. The licentiate explained to him the purport of his mission, and the views entertained of the proposed enterprise by the royal audience. The conquest of a powerful country like Mexico required the whole force of the Spaniards, and if one half were employed against the other, nothing but ruin could come of it. It was the governor's duty, as a good subject, to forego all private animosities, and to sustain those now engaged in the great work by sending them the necessary supplies. He might, indeed, proclaim his own powers, and demand obedience to them. But, if this were refused, he should leave the determination of his dispute to the authorized tribunals, and employ his resources in prosecuting discovery in another direction, instead of hazarding all by hostilities with his rival. This admonition, however sensible and salutary, was not at all to the taste of the governor. He professed, indeed, to have no intention of coming to hostilities with Cortés. He designed only to assert his lawful jurisdiction over territories discovered under his own auspices. At the same time, he denied the right of Ayon or the royal audience to interfere in the matter. Narváez was still more refractory, and as the fleet was now ready, proclaimed his intention to sail in a few hours. In this state of things, the licentiate, baffled in his first purpose of staying the expedition, determined to accompany it in person that he might prevent, if possible, by his presence, an open rupture between the parties. The squadron consisted of eighteen vessels, large and small. It carried nine hundred men, eighty of whom were cavalry, eighty more arquebusiers, one hundred and fifty crossbowmen with a number of heavy guns and a large supply of ammunition and military stores there were besides a thousand indians natives of the island who went probably in a menial capacity so gallant an armada with one exception the great fleet under ovando fifteen o one in which cortes had intended to embark for the new world never before rode in the indian seas none to compare with it had ever been fitted out in the western world leaving cuba early in march fifteen twenty narvaez held nearly the same course as cortes and running down what was then called the island of yucatan under a heavy tempest in which some of his smaller vessels foundered anchored april twenty third off san juan de ulua it was the place where cortes had also first landed the sandy waste covered by the present city of Veracruz. Here the commander met with a Spaniard, one of those sent by the general from Mexico, to ascertain the resources of the country, especially its mineral products. This man came on board the fleet, and from him the Spaniards gathered the particulars of all that had occurred since the departure of the envoys from Veracruz, the march to the interior, the bloody battles with the Tlaxcalans, the occupation of Mexico, the rich treasures found in it, and the seizure of the monarch, by means of which, concluded the soldier, Cortes rules over the land like its own sovereign, so that a Spaniard may travel unarmed from one end of the country to the other without insult or injury. 
His audience listened to this marvelous report with speechless amazement, and the loyal indignation of Narvaez waxed stronger and stronger as he learned the value of the prize which had been snatched from his employer. He now openly proclaimed his intention to march against Cortés and punish him for his rebellion. He made this vaunt so loudly that the natives who had flocked in numbers to the camp, which was soon formed on shore, clearly comprehended that the newcomers were not friends but enemies of the proceeding. Narbaez determined also, though in opposition to the counsel of the Spaniard, who quoted the example of Cortés, to establish a settlement on this unpromising spot, and he made the necessary arrangements to organize a municipality. He was informed by the soldier of the existence of the neighboring colony at Villarrica, commanded by Sandoval, and consisting of a few invalids, who, he was assured, would surrender on the first summons. Instead of marching against the place, however, he determined to send a peaceful embassy to display his powers, and demand the submission of the garrison. These successive steps gave serious displeasure to Ayon, who saw that they must lead to the inevitable collision with Cortés. But it was in vain he remonstrated, and threatened to lay the proceedings of Narvaz before the government. The latter, chafed by his continued opposition and sour rebuke, determined to rid himself of a companion who acted as a spy on his movements. He caused him to be seized and sent back to Cuba. The licentiate had the address to persuade the captain of the vessel to change her destination for Santo Domingo, and when he arrived there a formal report of his proceedings, exhibiting in strong colors the disloyal conduct of the governor and his lieutenant, was prepared and dispatched by the royal audience to Spain. Sandoval, meanwhile, had not been inattentive to the movements of Narvaez. From the time of his first appearance on the coast, that vigilant officer, distrusting the object of the armament, had kept his eye on him. No sooner was he apprised of the landing of the Spaniards than the commander of Villarrica sent off his few disabled soldiers to a place of safety in the neighborhood. He then put his works in the best posture of defense that he could, and prepared to maintain the place to the last extremity. His men promised to stand by him, and, the more effectually to fortify the resolution of any who might falter, he ordered a gallows to be set up in a conspicuous part of the town the constancy of his men was not put to the trial. The only invaders of the place were a priest, a notary, and four other Spaniards selected for the mission already noticed by Narvaez. The ecclesiastic's name was Guevara. On coming before Sandoval, he made him a formal address, in which he pompously enumerated the services and claims of Velázquez, taxed Cortés and his adherents with rebellion, and demanded of Sandoval to tender his submission as a loyal subject to the newly constituted authority of Narváez. The commander of La Villarrica was so much incensed at this unceremonious mention of his companions in arms, that he assured the reverend envoy that nothing but respect for his cloth saved him from the chastisement he merited. Guevara now waxed wroth in his turn, and called on the notary to read the proclamation. But Sandoval interposed, 
promising that functionary that, if he attempted to do so, without first producing a warrant of his authority from the crown, he should be soundly flogged. Guevara lost all command of himself at this, and, stamping on the ground, repeated his orders in a more peremptory tone than before. Sandoval was not a man of many words. He simply remarked that the instrument should be read to the general himself in Mexico. At the same time he ordered his men to procure a number of sturdy tamanes, or Indian porters, on whose backs the unfortunate priest and his companions were bound like so many bales of goods. They were then placed under the guard of twenty Spaniards, and the whole caravan took its march for the capital. Day and night they travelled, stopping only to obtain fresh relays of carriers, and as they passed through populous towns, forests, and cultivated fields, vanishing as soon as seen, the Spaniards, bewildered by the strangeness of the scene, as well as of their novel mode of conveyance, hardly knew whether they were awake or in a dream. In this way, at the end of the fourth day, they reached the Tezcocan Lake in view of the Aztec capital. Its inhabitants had already been made acquainted with the fresh arrival of white men on the coast. Indeed, directly on their landing, intelligence had been communicated to Montezuma, who is said, it does not seem probable, to have concealed it some days from Cortés. At length, inviting him to an interview, he told him there was no longer any obstacle to his leaving the country, as a fleet was ready for him. To the inquiries of the astonished general, Montezuma replied by pointing to a hieroglyphical map sent him from the coast, on which the ships, the Spaniards themselves, and their whole equipment were minutely delineated. Cortés, suppressing all emotions but those of pleasure, exclaimed, Blessed be the Redeemer for his mercies. On returning to his quarters, the tidings were received by the troops with loud shouts, the firing of cannon, and other demonstrations of joy. They hailed the newcomers as reinforcement from Spain. Not so their commander. From the first he suspected them to be sent by his enemy, the governor of Cuba. He communicated his suspicions to his officers, through whom they gradually found their way among the men. The tide of joy was instantly checked. Alarming apprehensions succeeded, as they dwelt on the probability of this suggestion, and on the strength of the invaders. Yet their constancy did not desert them, and they pledged themselves to remain true to their cause, and, come what might, to stand by their leader. It was one of those occasions that proved the entire influence which Cortés held over these wild adventurers. All doubts were soon dispelled by the arrival of the prisoners from Villarrica. One of the convoy, leaving the party in the suburbs, entered the city, and delivered a letter to the general from Sandoval, acquainting him with all the particulars. Cortés instantly sent to the prisoners, ordered them to be released, and furnished them with horses to make their entrance into the capital, a more creditable conveyance than the backs of Tamanes. On their arrival he received them with marked courtesy, apologized for the rude conduct of his officers, and seemed desirous by the most assiduous attentions to soothe the irritation of their minds. He showed his good will still further by lavishing presents on Guevara and his associates, until he gradually wrought such a change in their dispositions that, from enemies, he converted them into friends, and drew forth many important particulars respecting not merely the designs of their leader, 
but the feelings of his army. The soldiers in general, they said, far from desiring a rupture with those of Cortés, would willingly cooperate with them, were it not for their commander. They had no feelings of resentment to gratify. Their object was gold. The personal influence of Narváez was not great, and his arrogance and penurious temper had already gone far to alienate from him the affections of his followers. These hints were not lost on the general. He addressed a letter to his rival in the most conciliatory terms. He besought him not to proclaim their animosity to the world, and, by kindling a spirit of insubordination in the natives, unsettle all that had been so far secured. A violent collision must be prejudicial even to the victor, and might be fatal to both. It was only in union that they could look for success. He was ready to greet Narvaez as a brother-in-arms, to share with him the fruits of conquest, and, if he could produce a royal commission, to submit to his authority. Cortés well knew he had no such commission to show. Soon after the departure of Guevara and his comrades, the general determined to send a special envoy of his own. The person selected for this delicate office was Father Olmedo, who, through the campaign, had shown practical good sense, a talent for affairs, not always to be found in persons of his spiritual calling. He was entrusted with another epistle to Narváez of similar import with the preceding. Cortés wrote also to the licentiate Ayón, with whose departure he was not acquainted, and to Andrés de Duero, former secretary of Velázquez, and his own friend, who had come over in the present fleet. Olmedo was instructed to converse with these persons in private, as well as with the principal officers and soldiers, and as far as possible to infuse into them a spirit of accommodation. To give greater weight to his arguments he was furnished with a liberal supply of gold. During this time Narváez had abandoned his original design of planting a colony on the sea-coast, and had crossed the country to Sempoaya, where he had taken up his quarters. He was there when Guevara returned, and presented the letter of Cortés. Narváez glanced over it with a look of contempt, which was changed into one of stern displeasure, as his envoy enlarged on the resources and formidable character of his rival, counselling him by all means to accept his proffers of amity. A different effect was produced on the troops, who listened with greedy ears to the accounts given of Cortés, his frank and liberal manners, which they involuntarily contrasted with those of their own commander, the wealth in his camp, where the humblest private could stake his ingot and chain of gold at play, where all reveled in plenty, and the life of the soldier seemed to be one long holiday. Guevara had been admitted only to the sunny side of the picture. The impression made by these accounts was confirmed by the presence of Olmedo. The ecclesiastic delivered his missives in like manner to Narváez, who ran through their contents with feelings of anger which found vent in the most opprobrious invectives against his rival, while one of his captains, named Salvatierra, openly avowed his intention to cut off the rebels' ears and broil them for his breakfast. Such impotent sallies did not alarm the stout-hearted friar, who soon entered into communication with many of the officers and soldiers whom he found better inclined to an accommodation. His insinuating eloquence, 
backed by his liberal largesses, gradually opened a way into their hearts, and a party was formed under the very eye of their chief, better affected to his rival's interests than to his own. The intrigue could not be conducted so secretly as wholly to elude the suspicions of Narvaez, who would have arrested Olmedo and placed him under confinement but for the interposition of Duero. He put a stop to his further machinations by sending him back again to his master. But the poison was left to do its work. Narvaez made the same vaunt at his landing of his design to march against Cortés and apprehend him as a traitor. The Sempoayans learned with astonishment that their new guests, through the countrymen, were enemies of their former. Narvaez also proclaimed his intention to release Montezuma from captivity and to restore him to his throne. It is said he received a rich present from the Aztec emperor, who entered into a correspondence with him. That Montezuma should have treated him with his usual munificence, supposing him to be the friend of Cortes, is very probable, but that he should have entered into a secret communication hostile to the general's interests is too repugnant to the whole tenor of his conduct to be lightly admitted. These proceedings did not escape the watchful eye of Sandoval. He gathered the particulars partly from deserters, who fled to Villarrica, and partly from his own agents, who in the disguise of natives mingled in the enemy's camp. He sent a full account of them to Cortés, acquainted him with the growing defection of the Indians, and urged him to take speedy measures for the defense of Villarrica, if he would not see it fall into the enemy's hands. The general felt that it was time to act. Yet the selection of the course to be pursued was embarrassing in the extreme. If he remained in Mexico and awaited there the attack of his rival, it would give the latter time to gather round him the whole forces of the empire, including those of the capital itself, all willing, no doubt, to serve under the banners of a chief who proposed the liberation of their master. The odds were too great to be hazarded. If he marched against Narvaez, he must either abandon the city and the emperor, the fruit of all his toils and triumphs, or, by leaving a garrison to hold them in awe, must cripple his strength, already far too weak to cope with that of his adversary. Yet on this latter course he decided. He trusted less, perhaps, to an open encounter of arms, than to the influence of his personal address and previous intrigues, to bring about an amicable arrangement. But he prepared himself for either result. In the preceding chapter it was mentioned that Velázquez de León was sent with a hundred and fifty men to plant a colony on one of the great rivers emptying into the Mexican Gulf. Cortés, on learning the arrival of Narváez, had dispatched a messenger to his officer to acquaint him with the fact, and to arrest his further progress but Velázquez had already received notice of it from Narváez himself, who, in a letter written soon after his landing, had adjured him in the name of his kinsman, the governor of Cuba, to quit the banners of Cortés and come over to him. That officer, however, had long since buried the feelings of resentment which he had once nourished against his general, to whom he was now devotedly attached, and who had honoured him throughout the campaign with particular regard. Cortés had early seen the importance of securing this cavalier to his interests. 
without waiting for orders, Velázquez abandoned his expedition and commenced a countermarch on the capital, when he received the general's commands to await him in Cholula. Cortés had also sent to the distant province of Chinantla, situated far to the southeast of Cholula, for a reinforcement of two thousand natives. They were a bold race, hostile to the Mexicans, and had offered their services to him since his residence in the metropolis. They used a long spear in battle, longer, indeed, than that borne by the Spanish or German infantry. Cortés ordered three hundred of their double-headed lances to be made for him, and to be tipped with copper instead of itzli. With this formidable weapon he proposed to foil the cavalry of his enemy. The command of the garrison in his absence he entrusted to Pedro de Alvarado, the Tonatiu of the Mexicans, a man possessed of many commanding qualities, of an intrepid though somewhat arrogant spirit, and his warm personal friend. He inculcated on him moderation and forbearance. He was to keep a close watch on Montezuma, for on the possession of the royal person rested all their authority in the land. He was to show him the deference alike due to his high station and demanded by policy. He was to pay uniform respect to the usages and prejudices of the people, remembering that though his small force would be large enough to overawe them in times of quiet, yet, should they once be roused, it would be swept away like chaff before the whirlwind. From Montezuma he exacted a promise to maintain the same friendly relations with his lieutenant which he had preserved towards himself. This, said Cortés, would be most grateful to his own master, the Spanish sovereign. Should the Aztec prince do otherwise, and lend himself to any hostile movement, he must be convinced that he would fall the first victim of it. The emperor assured him of his continued good will. He was much perplexed, however, by the recent events. Were they at his court, or those just landed, the true representatives of their sovereign? Cortés, who had hitherto maintained a reserve on the subject, now told him that the latter were indeed his countrymen, but traitors to his master. As such it was his painful duty to march against them, and when he had chastised their rebellion he should return, before his departure from the land, in triumph to the capital. Montezuma offered to support him with five thousand Aztec warriors, but the general declined it, not choosing to encumber himself with a body of doubtful, perhaps disaffected, auxiliaries. He left in garrison under Alvarado one hundred and forty men, two-thirds of his whole force. With these remained all the artillery and the greater part of the little body of horse and most of the arquebusiers. He took with him only seventy soldiers, but they were the men of the most mettle in the army and his staunch adherents. They were lightly armed, and encumbered with as little baggage as possible. Everything depended on celerity of movement. Montezuma, in his royal litter, borne on the shoulders of his nobles, and escorted by the whole Spanish infantry, accompanied the general to the causeway. There, embracing him in the most cordial manner, they parted, with all the external marks of mutual regard. It was about the middle of May, 1520, more than six months since the entrance of the Spaniards into Mexico. During this time they had lorded it over the land with absolute sway. 
they were now leaving the city in hostile array, not against an Indian foe, but their own countrymen. It was the beginning of a long career of calamity, checkered, indeed, by occasional triumphs, which was yet to be run before the conquest could be completed. End of Book 4, Chapter 6